more crazy uh, happy about having lots of kids and lots of students here at E. In fact, uh, I try to, you know, keep up a little bit on, uh, on what's going on with kids and technology, and especially when I have these three little granddaughters in my life. And, and uh, Jordan, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, this is very cool. This week, some of you might have heard this. There is a new onesie for infants that's being test marketed. Seriously, this is not a joke. A onesie. And it has biometric sensors in this little clothing uniform for babies. It lets parents know in real time changes in body temperature, uh, heart rate, uh, moisture content. <laughs> really. What do you think of a parent? You get tweeted or by email or by uh, text one minute updates on how your kid is doing. And I don't know what you think about a parent that would do that, but to me, it's kind of cool. I mean, if you've done the, Smith, the sniff test, haven't you? Come on, get real here. You've done the sniff test. Wouldn't you rather get a tweet that says the kid, the kid needs a change? I'm, I'm kind of into this thing. In fact, I almost promised that I wouldn't say this because it's just crude and preachers probably shouldn't say this, but it's just too good. I think there's an app for crap now. That's... <laughs> It's out there, it's gone. If you like that, you're as sick as I am and you deserve me, you deserve me, that's the case. <laughs> oh man, what fun. Well, hey, we're talking about mission. We're asking this big question, so why? Why do we do what we do? Why don't we do a thousand other things that we could do and don't? And if we ever did what we're supposed to do and succeeded, how would we ever know what that looked like? Not bad questions, are they, for a congregation? In fact, uh, I don't think God has given us a biometric onesie, but my hunch is that he knows pretty well how his kids are doing and how his collection and congregations of kids are doing, and, and he's going to give us some great insight today on what we're all about as well, this mission. I had a great lunch this week at Starbucks. Well, <laughs> excuse me, that could be misconstrued. I had a lunch that was a wonderful time this week while I was at Starbucks. Let's be correct about what the wonderful was. And as I met with my friend Justin, it was the ninth time that we have had communication. When I first met him, it was an introduction from a mutual friend. And he thought we might like each other, that we might share some common interests in a particular business area. And, and so Justin and I met, and I followed up with a text. And then there was a follow-up email. And then there was a coffee when we met. And then he asked me if I'd recommend some leadership books. And so I sent an email with those. And then he gave me a call to clarify the priorities that I would suggest that, that he read those books. And then we met again and he talked with me about the content of that. And then he asked me for a business referral. And I sent him two hot, good business leads. And this week, we had lunch together at Starbucks. This is the ninth touch that we have had in each other's lives over the last few months. I knew when we sat down that this was going to be a very special conversation, unlike the earlier ones. He kind of leaned forward. You, you know what it looks like and feels like when someone has an agenda? I mean, you're not going to have to come up with it, right? They know exactly. You, you just listen. And he leaned forward and he said, aren't you something like a, are you a priest or a, a minister or a pastor or something? And uh, that's a dangerous, Herman, that's a dangerous question, isn't it? 
You've been there with me. You don't know whether to lie or what to do. It's always better not to lie in these situations. But, I, you know, where's this going? And I said, I, yes, I said, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and then, of course, what he was really wanting is for me to tell him everything I've ever thought and known about God, right? That's exactly what he wanted, right? No way. He wanted me to shut up. It was a closed-ended question. Yes or no, what are you? Yeah, I'm one of those. Okay, shut up. And for the next 40 minutes, he talked to me. And he told me about his renewed interest in learning about God and, and that he had downloaded, I cannot believe this, a lecture series of 24 lectures about the historical Jesus and how much he's learning about Jesus. And he made it very clear to me, I didn't want to have a religious point of view about Jesus. I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting take. So he said, I went to this lecture series because it's not religious. It's about the historical Jesus. I said, okay, we got that clear. And it's this guy, he graduated with his PhD in uh, religion and from, uh, from Princeton University, and now he's the head of the religion department at North Carolina State University, and he's listening to this lecture series. And after 30 minutes of telling me everything he's learning about Jesus, which is mostly what you know out of your Bibles, I said, why is it that you got motivated to, to doing this? And he said, well, my girlfriend, now fiance, uh, they're, they're living together, and he says, we're thinking about having kids, and we're even thinking about getting married. I kid you not, that was the sequence. And he said, she has a Catholic heritage and she wants to raise our kids Catholic. And I'm thinking to myself, not good ones apparently, right? Good Catholics are great. But anyways, so we go on and he says, and, I'm, and she wants me to convert like from nothing to Catholicism. And so I'm doing these classes at the Catholic church. And I go, that's amazing, that's wonderful. But he said, I didn't just want a religious point of view about Jesus. So I'm doing the historical Jesus. And so I asked questions, and I said, and so what are you and your fiancé discussing, and how are you finding differences between these two sources of information, and what are you getting to know about Jesus, and how is it beginning to influence and affect your worldview? I'm just listening to him tell me 40 minutes of his story. And after 40 minutes, he asked me the great question of the world. He said to me, so Jared, in your opinion... Why is Christianity so special? Oh, baby. <laughs> Can I drive a truck through that one? And did I ever have a few things that came to mind? Wouldn't it for you? I mean, I've been to Bible college. I you know, did seminary classes. Someone gave me a doctorate of divinity. Can you imagine that? I am prepared to tell this guy why Christianity is so special. I backed up the dump truck. I loaded, unloaded the whole thing. I smothered him with data and facts. And no, I didn't. I did exactly what you would have done. I acted not like a theologian and not like a scholar and not like a lecturer. Because do you notice that when Jesus sent us in the world, that he didn't tell us to be scholars or theologians or lecturers, did he? He said, I want you to be my witnesses. And what is a witness? It's someone who's had an experience. And you tell people the truth about what you experienced. And I said, Justin, in my experience, what makes Christianity so special is that Jesus Christ forgave me of my sin and gave me purpose and life forever and no religious system, worldview, or other philosophy of life takes care of my sin issue, period. 
That was it. That's a compound sentence right there. That was my answer. Because this was a conversation we were having. I got to tell him my answer to the greatest question in the world. What makes Christianity so special? That is the ultimate question in life. And it is the question that John the baptizer, sometimes we call him John the Baptist, was answering as we take a look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 today. As the second cousin of Jesus is talking to some of his followers and some other people are wandering by and Jesus is near, and John the baptizer looks over to Jesus and says, hey, look, look at him, look. That's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, period. That was the big introduction. Because God's big story is how to fix the sin gap between us and him forever. Now, John the baptizer was a Jewish person, and he was in a Jewish context, and because of that, he used this classic Old Testament illusion and word to describe Jesus the Lamb of God. Did you notice that when I was talking to Justin this week, I didn't say Christianity is special because it has a Lamb of God in it. No, I, I used some other language. But this was the perfect language for John. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word Lamb is used about 96 times. 85 of though it refers specifically to a sacrificial Lamb. A Lamb being slaughtered. It's just a few weeks, around our world, Passover will be celebrated by millions of people. And Passover goes back to the very first experience of when the people of Israel became a nation together. You remember the story. They were in Egypt, and that night a death angel was going to come across the land. And it was the Jewish community that slaughtered each family, a lamb and place some of that lamb's blood around their door frame. And that night when the death angel came and passed over families without that covering, the firstborn died. But when the death angel came to the house that was marked with lamb's blood, he passed over that house, and a life was spared. That's why in Jewish history then, in tradition, religious practice for millennia, it was the practice of slaughtering animals. It was a bloody form of worship. And John the baptizer was very familiar with that because his daddy was a priest. His daddy professionally killed lambs. John probably year after year, day after day, saw the slaughter of lambs. His dad would come home smelling and splattered with blood. When John the baptizer saw Jesus and said, look at him. That's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He was absolutely turning religious understanding upside down. Because for millennia, a lamb took the place of a human. But when Jesus came, a man took the place of a lamb, fulfilling what had been looked forward to by that religious practice now in the form of the apex of human and celestial history of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bridge the sin gap by dying an unjust death, standing in for us so that the wages of sin, which is death, could pass over us and we could have eternal life. 
What an amazing story, central in God's big story. And what we're going to read today is what the uh, first listeners experienced as they heard those words. Would you notice with me on your outline, and also the words will come up on a screen, or if you'd like to look in Bibles that you brought or Bibles that we've provided for you in the back of the auditorium, let's take a look at John chapter 1, verse 36, and then jumping to verse 40, it says this. Look, the Lamb of God. Now Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Well, today I want you to meet three new friends. Weird John, nobody Andrew, and slow Philip. And before you get too hard on these guys about, you know, they're not all that impressive, you may just find yourself in their story too. I certainly do. Weird John, you've got to admit, this John the Baptizer guy was one weird dude. Now, he wasn't the Apostle John that wrote the book of John and wrote the letters called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He was John who was the last prophet who God chose was going to be the one that was going to introduce him. We love kids here. We do. And sometimes they get done before I do. It happens often. (laughs) We love you guys. Love kids. Yeah. Sometimes some of you get done before I am too. And if you're a guest here today, we want you to know that uh, please don't leave mad or boisterous. Just be discreet if you finish up before I do. It's perfectly fine here. We're one big family and community together. John was one weird dude. In fact, he, uh, he wore on purpose coarse, prickly robe made out of camel's hair. And he bound it together with this big strap of leather. And he ate grasshoppers and raw honey, the food of the poorest of the poor. And he was something of a recluse eccentric. And when he came in from the wilderness, I would imagine that he smelled a lot the way he looked. I mean, grasshopper breath and everything. Now, think about this for a minute. He's God's PR plan. You got that, didn't you? God had a long time to think about how he was going to do the big thing. Like a long time to think it over. Like from eternity past. So he's thinking, how am I going to solve the human problem of sin? How am I going to introduce my son Jesus? Oh, I think I'll get a weird guy with grasshopper breath that comes in looking and smelling odd, talking to some people, and someday I'll have Jesus walk by, and this guy will say, hey, looky over there. That's the one. That's the Lamb of God. That's how God did it. Is that crazy or what? That encourages me. I find myself there. I felt weird a time or two. Some of you have too. How about Andrew? Nobody Andrew. 
Now, let's give the guy some credit. He was one of the first two followers of Jesus, we're told here. I mean, he, he got it quickly. And the first thing he did was he, he finds his brother Peter, which was probably a good thing, but psychologically and emotionally, it may not have been. There are eight times that Andrew is mentioned in the Bible, and all of them except here, he comes second place to Peter. Andrew's first finds Peter, and every other time it's, oh, but Peter and Andrew. Yeah. In fact, he was the first one to follow Jesus, and by the time the Gospels were written, he worked his way all the way down to the middle or lower in the list of the 12 apostles. And when Jesus picked the inner circle, Andrew didn't make the cut. Peter did, along with a set of brothers, James and John, but not Andrew. Andrew is kind of a nobody, anonymous to start with, and we really don't know anything about him outside of the Gospels. But we do know three things. He knew how to bring people to Jesus, and he brought him one at a time. He brought his brother Peter. Find, tell, bring. And then one day there was a kid with a lunch, five rolls and two sardines. And Andrew brought him to Jesus. You know the rest of the story with the lunch, don't you? Several thousand were fed. The third time we find Andrew was when there were some outsiders that wanted to see Jesus. They're called Greeks. And because Jesus came primarily in his earthly life and ministry to the Jewish nation and community of faith, those of us that don't share a Jewish background would have been excluded. We would have been outsiders from that season. These Greeks wanted to meet Jesus and had no access to him. But Andrew found them and brought them to Jesus. Andrew may have been a nobody, but I'll tell you this about Andrew. He brought some people to Jesus. And the first one he brought his brother stood a few years later and preached his first message and 3,000 people came to Jesus. He found a kid with a lunch and brought him to Jesus and that lunch fed up to 20,000 people that day. He brought some Greeks to Jesus that were outsiders and weren't supposed to be there legitimately and it spoke into the future of the world that all of us would have access to Jesus. That's the kind of people that Jesus uses to win the world for him. And then, have I mentioned Philip? You gotta love Philip. This guy was slow from start to finish. He was, well, I grew up on the farm. He was uh, one card, uh, actually, I don't know how that one goes. But anyway, turnip trucks and hands and decks, I don't know what it is, but he was a little bit slow. Go ahead and laugh at me, Herman, that's okay. It makes me feel good. So. Philip. As it started out, he, he finds Nathaniel, by the way, often called Bartholomew in the list of the other apostles. And as he brings him to Jesus, there's a couple of other times in the Gospels that we hear about Philip. The first one was that big story when Jesus fed the multitudes of people with the kids' lunch. Before that happened, Jesus gave Philip a test. It was a one-question test. And Philip got a big fat F on the test. He not only gave the wrong answer, he answered the wrong question. Really was slow. In fact, let me read it to you. It's, it's mind-boggling. Jesus, Jesus says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? And Philip says, oh, I know the answer. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. It's like Jesus is going... Are we having the same conversation here? 
Yeah. And then it wasn't like time helped him. The night before Jesus was betrayed, hours before he was crucified, Jesus is giving the last talk to his followers, right? This is the big last talk. He's tying it all together. Philip still doesn't get it. Jesus said, and I quote, if you, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. And Philip kind of scratches his head and he says, hey, if you just show us the father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus' response was sharp. It was a stern rebuke and he said, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I've been with you for such a long time, don't you know that anyone that has seen me has seen the Father? Philip was slow on the uptake and the downtake. But Philip knew how to bring people to Jesus. Andrew and Philip's only claim to fame was bringing people to Jesus. Now, most of us are not uh, crazy over-the-top extroverts. In fact, some of us are introverts. We as introverts, about 30% of us likely, we, we love people, we care for people, and we enjoy people. But we've discovered about life that it works better for us to have fewer relationships that go deep than lots of relationships that are kind of more casual. And it can be tougher for us to engage with others. In fact, uh, I'm having fun. I'm just finishing a book. It just came out a few weeks ago. It's called Quiet. And you'll love the subtitle. The power of introverts in a world that just won't stop talking. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I heard some extroverts laugh and some introverts smiled really, really big on that one. Yeah. There's another reason that many of us find it difficult to, to share our faith with others and engage. And, and it's because we don't know enough, right? I mean, do any of you still have some questions about God and faith? Yeah. And then we think about, now, if I have this conversation, they'll have their own questions, and, and I'm going to look dumb, right? I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to look underinformed, of course. Doesn't it give you some hope and some courage when you see how God chose to launch his church with a weird guy and a nobody person and a slow guy in the mix? And hey, folks, by definition, they didn't know as much as you know. So how is it that we can bring people to Jesus? Well, we can introduce people to Jesus the same way that they did. Andrew and Philip. In fact, on your way in today, on the seat back, you found, or the seat, you found a love list card. And just like their pattern, we find and we tell and we bring. We find people. They're introduced to us. And we begin to build authentic relationships with pre-Christians. And then we tell. We share them what we know about Jesus. And then we bring them. We bring them to Easter service or a Palm Sunday service or one of our small groups or some other context where other people are going to be there as well that are talking about Jesus. And we create a love list of people that God has uniquely put in your life that you'll be praying for. And it says, I'll pray every day for these people and ask God to give me the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and to invite them to church as well. Find and tell and bring. Do you notice that when God launched what is not only a worldwide movement, but more important is God's kingdom forever movement called the church, that when he launched it, he launched it in a way where people came one by one or two at a time, and that still is primarily the way he is building his kingdom on earth? 
In fact, about 80% of the guests that we enjoy each weekend here at Evergreen have come because of a personal invitation that you've extended their way. It makes sense, doesn't it? That's how we're wired. We respond to invitations for people that we trust. And we trust people that we believe care about us. We've all heard it said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, of course. My friend Justin tried to shock me out of a relationship with him. He told me he was shacking up with his girlfriend. He told me what he thought about Christians and Christianity. He told me what he thought was more, uh, made more sense in terms of worldview. He tested me to see if he could bait me into conversations. And as far as I know, he never saw me flinch. What he got instead was me following up and taking the next step. And good for him to check me out. Why should he trust me? Why should he believe that I care for him? Only because of my trustworthiness and only because of the genuine nature of my care. And we got to a point in the relationship where he decided that it was safe enough to have a conversation that scratched a little bit deeper. In fact, one of our good friends here is just a great, great inviter. And uh, Mindy, you're in this service. And I don't know where you're seated right now, but if you waved at me, that would be fun. I'm looking for that Mindy hand right over here. Is it okay if I read a quote from you? Because Mindy is just a great inviter. And this is what you said. Our kids and their sports are an open door for us. When other parents open up about personal struggles or issues with kids, I share my story of how God changed me, my marriage, and my family. And I just don't give up. If it doesn't work out this week, I'll try again next week. And I invite people every week, and I'll invite the same people over and over. That's what Mindy said. It's working pretty well. In fact, yeah, yeah, give Mindy a hand. We may feel weird. We may feel like nobodies. Of course we feel like we don't know the Bible well enough and don't have all of the answers to all the questions. Did you notice that that's not the point? In fact, join the club. That's who we are, folks. And that's how it always has been as well. Find and tell and bring. Someone in your world is just waiting for you to bring them to Jesus. In this series about mission, Anne launched us last week with the first part of mission, which is love. And on your outlines there today, you'll notice the text from Matthew chapter 22 where he quotes Jesus. And this is what he says about the great command, which is to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The first part of our mission is to love God and love people. The second part of our mission is the great commission. It's to win. As Matthew continues to quote Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, it says, So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go ahead and flip your outline over there. And notice the pattern that's been so clearly given to us, not only by these two guys, but certainly including them, the pattern to find and tell and to bring. 
and to write down for us on these cards and for us to keep wherever you do your one-on-one devotional time with Jesus or wherever it is that you come and reflect and pray and interact with God on a daily basis and praying for the opportunities that God will give you to engage in their lives. So Andrew and Philip have done a stellar job showing us how to bring people to Jesus. Find, tell, and bring. The Apostle Paul also gives us an interesting lesson on how not to bring people to Jesus. In fact, just think with me. Some of you are pretty familiar with your Bibles, and you can go right there in your mind. Others of you can come along, and this will be brand new for you. It'll make sense to all of us, though. The Apostle Paul writes to a congregation, a church in the city of Corinth, and and in chapters, the end of 11, and chapter 12, and chapter 14, he's encouraging them to be very spiritual people, to grow in their spirituality. All of us aspire to do that and should, shouldn't we? And as a part of that, he encourages them to press in to, to gifts of God's Spirit so that Jesus can continue his ministry powerfully through us. That's a good thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Press in, be spiritual, be filled with God's spirit. Be a person engaged with and pressing into the gifts of the spirit. That's good. That's what it's all about. But parenthetically, in chapter 13, he backs away from that to give us a perspective. And in verses 1, 2, and 3, he basically says this. He says, listen, I don't even want you to try to bring people to Jesus by impressing them with your spirituality or your gifts. Don't even try it. And don't try to bring people to Jesus because you have such amazing knowledge and such amazing faith. Don't even try to go there. And don't try to impress people to Jesus because of your generous philanthropy and your living a life of self-sacrifice. Because if you do all of those things, all of which are good and we aspire to, and you don't have love, you have, say it with me, nothing. That's the result. Ah. Isn't it interesting that the first three guys to introduce others to Jesus weren't all that spectacular in their spirituality and gifts and their knowledge, even their faith and their philanthropy, but what did they have? They cared enough to find and tell and bring. Paul goes on to tell us precisely how to bring people to Jesus the next verses, and you'll find them there in the middle of your handout. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this about love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't strut. It doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back. Love keeps going to the end. Love never fails. And love never fails to bring people to Jesus. I happen to know a lot of stuff about God that I haven't told Justin yet. But do you know that Justin doesn't care at this point about most of what I know about God? What he cares about is what's his next best step. Where's he with God? 
What's happening in his worldview that's bringing him to a place of faith and understanding as he's on his seeking journey? What he cares most about me is that I'm willing to take the next step with him. That's what love looks and feels like. And you'll find some homework, which I hope will be fun for you to do. And guys, those of you that join me for a discussion group over breakfast at 6 a.m. on Tuesday mornings at the um, Hillsboro IHOP, shameless plug for that. <laughs> and guys that want to come for the monthly uh, breakfast here at 8 o'clock on Saturday, you don't even need to sign up, just show up. Breakfast is provided. We're going to be talking about this 10 by 10 matrix. This is homework for you to do. It's really fun. Now, notice that it's 10 steps to win, to find, tell, and bring. And on the uh, left-hand side, the, the vertical axis there, there are life venues. If they don't work for you, just scratch it out and put someone else in there. Uh, a schoolmate, a classmate, uh, someone that you work with, a family member, a neighbor, an old friend, a, a now friend, a new friend, a, a client, a provider, a barista, another person. And then as you identify, that's the find piece. You write their name there under find. Do you notice how far you have to go across this on the horizontal axis to get to tell? Quite a ways, don't you? Because you don't get to tell after you find usually. We usually get to find and pray and love and love and love and love and love and love. And when they ask why, we tell just enough. And then we have the right to invite and to bring. I put Justin's name down here and I checked the boxes as we went across. And basically that's the story that I told you as I started this talk today of how we met and how I prayed and how we engaged and how we hung out and when I helped and how I listened and how I asked. And eventually, last week, he asked me why. And I was able to tell. And he's on my list along with his fiance, and it's so cool. In fact, at the end of our lunch, he said, you know, it'd be great to meet your wife and, and my fiance and I, we'd love to have you guys come over for dinner at our home. Would, if we give an invitation, would you consider doing that sometime? Is that a crazy, amazing gift or what? Yeah. You say, you'd go have dinner with somebody that's shacking up? <laughs> I guess so. I love what Jesus did with Zacchaeus, don't you? Who needed the other one more? Did Zacchaeus need Jesus more? Did Jesus need Zacchaeus more? I mean, really. Probably Zacchaeus needed Jesus. How did the relationship start? Jesus said, I need you. I need to come to your place. In fact, I'm not even asking, I'm just telling. Get out of the tree, man, because I'm coming over to your place for dinner this afternoon because that's what love looks like. A relationship looks like going to where the friend is and helping them take their next best step. So you have under your chairs, by the way, did you hear the, this, this, the trees screaming as they were slaughtered for all the printed material here today. I mean, is it just crazy and over the top? Under your chairs, there's some post-it notes. You'll want to bend over, reach down, and get one of those. And if you're like me, you're old and you're losing your flexibility, just nudge someone next to you, and while they're down there, they're, they'll go ahead and collect yours as well. Okay, there we go. We, we don't want any tweaked backs here as a result of the post-it notes today. So you've got your post-it notes? If you haven't found them, there's pens in the... Uh, the seat backs right in front of you there. 
Now, this is what I'm going to ask you to do before the end of the service. We're going to be wrapping up shortly. Is I'm going to ask you from your love list to write down the first name of someone on the post-it note. Justin. First name is written here. And then you go to the second one and you write down someone else on your love list. And then a third and then a fourth. Some of you might have three names. Some of you might have eight names. And then at the end of the service, Anne is going to invite you to go to our winning walls and put your post-it notes on the walls. And collectively, across the, the first two services and this service, we are collectively going to be praying the next four weeks for the men, the women, the students, and the children's names that are on these walls. These are people that God has sovereignly put in your life for a special relationship, and we're going to join you in praying that God gives you opportunities to love and to share with them as well. In fact, I don't think it could be said better than a story that just happened exactly seven days ago to the hour here at Evergreen. She's a third grader. She comes regularly. And she asked her mom if she could ask her best friend to come spend Saturday night with her. And she wanted her friend then to come Sunday morning to church with her. And the moms both agreed, and the little girl stayed over for a sleepover last Saturday night. This is what the third grader had told her mom, I quote, I want my friend to come to church because she and her family do not know Jesus. And I'm sure that if she comes, it will make a difference. Hmm. That's an e-kid. It always makes a difference. Find, tell, bring. This is what John said. Look, the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. Justin said, Jared, in your experience and opinion, why is Christianity so special? And I said, because Jesus Christ forgave my sin and no other worldview can answer my sin problem. And this week, we're going to be finding, praying, loving, sharing, eating, playing with, serving, helping, and listening. And some of us will get to tell, and all of us will get to bring, because we are a part of this generation, of the extension of God's family and kingdom around this world. And it almost always happens, one-on-one, -on -one. find, tell, and bring.